meet with a bunch of lawyers, which even though we are lawyers, is as painful for us as it is for you. Um, meet with a bunch of lawyers all afternoon, only to get back on an airplane and fly back to Houston. And just a, a day trip to San Francisco is not typically your highest and best use of your time. By the way, while I'm saying this, anybody need lessons? We've got lessons. Anybody need lessons? Need lessons? Hold your hand up. Okay. Yeah, Mark Kraber's got them. So just keep your hand up and he'll make it around. Yes, and visitors. If we have visitors here, we have a visitor card for you to fill out. It doesn't mean that you get like coupons in the mail or even a home visit. All it does is it gets us like... Um, more credit with the church office ourselves. We get discount coupons in the mail. So, uh, no, it's not that at all. If, uh, uh, if you are a visitor with us, it, we, we, just, we are at a church where we've got people who keep track of, of, of numbers and counts and stuff. It helps us know that you are here and uh, helps them. For example, next Sunday, uh, they know to take our class and they've asked as many as can to attend the 1115 service because they have a good feel for how many visitors we have, how many members we have, and, and all. So if you are a visitor, if you'll raise your hand, if you don't mind filling one of these out, there's Miss Pfeiffer, she's got her hand up, and a gentleman in front of her, hi Miss Pfeiffer, and we've got some folks down here, Miss Pfeiffer taught my son Bible like um, five, six years ago, and she did real good, he's, he's got a lot of it down. Um, anyway, a, a day trip to San Francisco um, can kind of wear you out. And, and I was on the plane on the way back, and it was a time for personal evaluation of what's going on, which means I was having trouble sleeping, so I was trying to think of things that would put me to sleep. And um, I thought, you know, if I could live one day of my life over, which day would I choose? I looked at my watch, and I decided I'd give myself 60 seconds to figure it out. So I, um, I started, <laughs> y'all know, it takes a weird person to stand up here each Sunday. Um, so I started time, and I thought, well, I'm going to have trouble with this because I can divide this into two different kinds of days. There could be a really bad day that I wanted to change and make different. Or there could be a really good day that was so wonderful that I'd want to relive it. And, of course, the immediate thought of, gee, the day I got married came to mind. But I decided, um, where's Becky? I said something nice, didn't I? But I, I was sitting there and I was thinking, okay, what day would I choose? So I divided it up. What day would I choose to relive because it was a great day? Then what day would I choose to relive because the day was so lousy? I'd like to change it. Well, immediately a lot of days started coming to mind. And this was not where I thought about the wedding day. And <clears throat> that did not come to mind. I thought... You know, if you really go back and I really got to change that lousy day, I'm not so sure I would. Because even though that may be the worst day of my life, that day kind of made me part of who I am. And in some ways I don't like what it made, but nonetheless it's so part of who I am that I wonder how different I would be if I changed that day and I ripped that day out of my life. And so I decided I might go back and relive the day of misery or horribleness. But 
I would probably not change it. I would probably just relive it knowing that God works in my life to change who I am and that that day is not bigger than God and that day was not bigger than me. But that day was under God's blessing and under who I am. And in the worst of circumstances, He has brought me to a place where I have joy in my heart and a, and a, and a wonderful life. Now, some of you may not be there. And I'm not saying that that's the biblical place to be necessarily. But I am telling you that it's a wonderful thing to be thinking about as we work our way through uh, Genesis and finish Genesis today. And we really will. Really. Okay. I mean, that was worthy of an entire point. Look, really. We finished Genesis today. Um, but we've got to keep Genesis in context. And so um, uh, recognizing we always have people who come first Sunday... Uh, recognizing also that we have people who uh, forget and recognizing that uh, 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 going over something over and over until it becomes part of who you are uh, is is a core part of teaching. When we try lawsuits, Bob always tells me I have to tell everything three times so that people really get it and get a hold of it. Um, if you were listening this morning as Damon started talking from in his sermon about how we know that everything is not right within us and we know that we're not as we were created to be. I hope some of the lessons that we've been going have reverberated in your mind um, as he does that. I will tell you that in the context of Genesis, as we finish this story, we have unfolding the introduction to the drama of human redemption. Demond saying this morning, we're not the way we want to be. We don't feel like we ought to feel. Life is not the way we think life should be. The introduction to this drama of human redemption is in the book of Genesis. It is in the book of Genesis that we read about God and man in harmony in the Garden of Eden. We read about God making man and walking with man and talking to man and things being uh, perfectly harmonious. It is also in Genesis that we read about man's sin. And as Daman said, it marred the image of God. It went even further. It, it uh, um, destroyed man from God. There are three views of mankind in general that, that I believe philosophically I've noticed. Some folks believe that man is, is good. Okay? Some folks believe that man is sick. Other people believe that man is dead. Just so far gone. Um, I think biblically what we have taught is that man was made to be good and that we can still see some good in man because of the way man was made. And that's what enables some philosophers to look only at that good and say, gee, man is good. But man is not, in, in his form now, we are not good. Um, we, have, we are not purely good. Uh, the second view is that man is sick. And a lot of Christians have this view and we just need to get well because we've got a sickness. That's really not the biblical view. The biblical view is the third. Man is dead. And the goodness you see is just uh, the, the death throes of the chicken who's had his neck wrung but is still kind of shaking. Uh, you know, or maybe the flavor of the chicken when we cook it. But man is dead. And man needs to be reborn into the true life that we have. The goodness that you see is nothing compared to the goodness that God has for us. It is nothing compared to the goodness that we were made for. And so the biblical image is that man has died in his sin and man needs a new life. And it is this promise of new life that is considered a promise of redemption. 
God will bring man back into how man was made to be. And this promise of redemption has its seeds in the Garden of Eden. It is a redemption prophecy where God says, through the offspring of woman, I will bring about a redemption for mankind. Through the offspring of woman, I will bring about a new life that brings forth new life from death. Damon talking this morning about how uh, in, in Christ we are a new creation. This is all the same theme. And this finds its, its, its uh, genesis in Genesis. Uh, it is in Genesis that Jesus, I mean, that, that Jesus is first prophesied, where God says, through the offspring of woman, and then as we followed the Genesis story, I guess for me it's this way, for y'all it's this way, unless you're Hebrew, in which it would be that way for you, and this way for me. But that's another point. For y'all, it's this way. You know, we follow it, the promise of redemption. The promise of redemption flows and it starts out as the prophecy through the offspring of woman. But we see through Genesis, God further defining, God further specifying where this redemption is going to come. So it starts out just the offspring of woman. And we learn it's not Cain or Abel, we learn it's Seth. And then we learn that it's going to be through Noah. Then we learn that it's going to be through Abraham. And Abraham gets the call more specifically. And we even learn through Abraham that it will be a sacrifice God provides and not merely the sacrifice of Isaac. So these promises get more specific through Genesis. And, and we see it through Abraham and Sarah, not through Hagar. And then we see it's through Isaac. And then we see through Isaac it's going to be Jacob, not Esau. And then Jacob goes about, and this is where we start picking up, um, Jacob has 12 sons through uh, four different women, two of whom he was actually married to. Um, through Leah, he has multiple sons, Leah being one wife. Through Leah's uh, handmaid, her maidservant, um, he has a, a couple kids. Um, Rachel, his true love wife that he really worked for, um, he gets a couple kids from her and from her handmaiden as well. Now, the way the kids come out, is important to understanding the human emotional saga of the Joseph story. So we want to take a moment. Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Leah, you'll recall, is the wife that uh, her name means cow in Hebrew. Uh, she, she was not his first pick. Um, you know, we come up with these expressions that are so, you know, 1990s or 2000-ish like, uh, she's a cow. Man, that's biblical. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's been there for a few thousand years. Um, so Leah, she's a fertile cow. She's giving birth to these calves right and left. And she has a number of them. And um, uh, in addition to Leah, uh-oh, uh, Bilhah has a couple. Um, Bilhah being uh, uh, the servant of Rebekah. Because remember, um, Jacob marries Leah and Rebekah. He gets uh, Leah and Rachel. Sorry. I have girls named Rachel, Rebecca, Sarah, Gracie. Uh, and so I get real mixed up with these names. Okay. Um, now I'm totally lost on names. I am so lost anyway. Bob and I were trying a case one time. We just finished one case representing Captain Poinso. We went in to try another case for Captain Petrie. And I stood up and spent an hour talking to the jury and calling him the wrong name. 
yeah, there's great credibility for the lawyer. Um, my good client I care so much about, Captain Petra. What's your name again? Uh, anyway, um, Jacob marries Leah uh, um, by mistake. You know, he doesn't want Leah. He doesn't want the cow. He wants the female sheep, Rachel, which is what Rachel means. But um, he gets both. Well, Rachel knows she's his uh, true love. But back then, man, you, you want uh, merit badges, you produce sons. Okay, that's the merit badge, okay? And Leah's not, Leah's not having any trouble. Man, they're dropping out of her. And Bill, um, and so Re- Rachel is feeling real inferior. And she starts moaning. And finally she just says, well, kill me now, God. Because I don't want to live. I can't produce offspring. And so she, Rachel comes up with the brilliant idea. I'll let my maidservant... Um, uh, take care of this womanly responsibility as well. And so um, she goes and gets her maidservant, Bilhah, who does produce a couple of kids. Well, Leah says, that's okay, I got a maidservant. And she gets her maidservant in on the action and gets Gad and Asher as a couple of kids. And then Leah has another one just to make the, the, the icing on the cake even more sweet for her and bitter for Rachel. Well, at this point, you know, Joseph, not Joseph, Jacob, the dad, the husband, the guy who's fathering these kids. <clears throat> He's having a lot of trouble with his wife, Rachel, because her heart's just broken. And that's his true love anyway. And all of the rest of this has just been substituting something to do. So he... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. So he, um, he... He recognizes that this is not good. And lo and behold, Rachel finally has a child. And it's a boy. After all ten of these guys come out, Joseph. And this is the answer not only to Rachel's dream, it's the answer to Jacob's as well. Then Rachel has a second son, Benjamin is what the name he winds up with. And, and in this giving birth to this son, Rachel dies okay, in the childbirthing process. So now Jacob has lost his true love. <clears throat> He's still got all these other um, people um, uh, and all these kids. But we read the story and we read that, that Jacob is not the kind of father that we would necessarily want to be. Because Jacob has favorite children. In particular, two. Can you guess which two? Yeah. It, it ain't Naphtali and Dan. Okay? It's Joseph and Benjamin. And those are his favorite children by far. And as we work ourselves through this story, we see that um, Joseph uh, uh, um, receives his father's doting in, in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, the multicolored, no, technicolor coat. Uh, uh, Bob's wife, Kelly, has got a favorite song from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, or so Bob says. Um, I don't know that song or I was going to sing it this morning. But I will tell you that we've all, many of us have heard about Joseph's coat of many colors and are the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And, and this was a special coat and that, that his father, Jacob, gave to Joseph. Now, Jacob's got 12 sons. To single out the favorite son or firstborn son of the favorite coupling wife 
cannot really be an encouraging thing for all the other boys. And a real us and them mentality existed within that family. And it was not a good thing. And what made it even worse is Joseph starts having dreams. And Joseph has dreams about how all, of, you know, in all of his dreams, there's like 12 or 14 people involved. Basically, it's uh, both parental units with all of his brothers. And in those dreams, the brothers and the parental units all bow down to Joseph. And Joseph is, in essence, lord or king over them. Well, those kinds of dreams typically are not best shared with your brothers and your parents. Um, you know, discretion would tell you uh, when you're already the favored child and you already get the father's doting and your mother was the favored mother, that it's not really good to walk around and rub everybody's nose in it much less to do it with the idea that God's given you a dream, just confirming how wonderful and special you are and everyone else is like dirt. Okay. So um, Joseph is not the smartest guy in the world in terms of discretion on this, in my opinion. These might be days that he would wish he could live over again because what Joseph does is decides he's going to share these dreams with his family. And tell them about how God's given him dreams saying he's so much more special and important than everybody else. And everybody else will bow down to him. Rembrandt, uh, um, okay, there. Rembrandt captured one of these in just a, an etching. And that's Joseph. And Joseph, that's his dad. And these are all of the brothers. And, and, and the idea that the dad's even seated with Joseph standing there telling the, the story is significant. And these others, they just kind of fade into the background because they become unimportant. The only important thing is Joseph, who is towering over even his father and his mother um, as this story is retold. Uh, um, uh, it's, uh, it's an etching that Rembrandt, or a pencil drawing, I believe, actually, that, that Rembrandt did. But it's a very significant story because the brothers don't like it. And so while the brothers are out working, it seems also Joseph doesn't have to work quite as hard as his brothers. His dad seems to give the brothers the tough tasks, and Joseph gets to, to, to supervise and to just kind of mill around. And so while the brothers are out with all of the sheep, Joseph gets sent to his brothers to uh, uh, tend to, to make sure everything's okay and uh, to kind of be a communication nexus. And the brothers see Joseph coming, and of course Joseph goes out there wearing his special coat, his seal of father's favorite, okay? Joseph goes out there. Well, the brothers say, look who's coming. It's the little spoiled brat. And as Joseph comes riding out, um, Castillo does this painting um, where Joseph's on a great horse and the brothers are all out there, and this is a cistern or a well, and these are the sheep, and they're all working like dogs, and, and with their shirts and clothes ripped because of who they are. Joseph's riding out there on the fancy horse with the fancy garments and the duds. Hey guys, you sweating today? How's it going? The brothers see Joseph coming, and they say, hey, here comes Joseph. You know, I got an idea. Why don't we kill him? That sure will make that dream a corker, won't it? Hey, here comes the dreamer. Okay, dreamer. And they take Joseph and they take off his coat of many colors. 
and they set that aside because it's going to play into the story, and they throw him down a well to kill him. They don't want to, you know, hurt the guy, so they're not going to, like, knife him. They're just going to throw him down there and let him starve and die miserably over the next 45 days or however long it might take. Then one of them gets the bright idea, you know, we're not really that kind of people. We don't need to murder our baby brother, especially when we can sell him into slavery and make some money. And here are some Ishmaelites who are headed to Egypt. Egypt's far away. He'll never make it back. He's only about 17 at this point. Why don't we sell the boy to the Ishmaelites, let them cart him off to Egypt? We'll take his coat back to dad and explain that he's dead. So, with this as a scheme, they pull him out of the well, say, well, there's good news and bad news, Joseph. The good news is you're not going to die. The bad news is we're selling you into slavery. You're headed to Egypt. Have a good vacation, and we'll see you later. And they sell him into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt. Now, these might be the kinds of days where Joseph says, you know, if I could live that day over again, I'm not really sure I'd go out there. It wasn't that good. We have wells at home where I can get water without going in them. Um, you know, it, it, just, it just didn't seem like the kind of day he would have. But God works in the midst of all of this. And these are days that are brought on even by Joseph's own indiscretions and his own errors and his own mistakes in judgment, the way he treated his brother, the sins of his father as the way his father treated him. There are logical, good human reasons this is happening, but still not a quality day. Yet a day God works through as we follow through the story. So Joseph um, does this, and he is sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites. Genesis thirty-seven twenty-eight. Uh, Flandrin does this painting. Uh, frankly, he's supposed to be about 17 years old here, and I think Flandrin may not have read that part because this kid doesn't look 17 to me, but maybe he looked youthful. He probably didn't smoke and drink, and that helps. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, In the meanwhile, the brothers head back and they take the coat, the coat of many colors. They take a a dead sheet and they dip the coat in the blood of the sheep. They rip it some. They bring it back and they take it to dad. Because they they don't want to lie and say, hey, Joseph's dead. So instead they'll just deceive. Say, we don't know where Joseph is. And I guess technically they didn't because that caravan was long gone. But look what we found. And Joseph, of course, I mean... Jacob thinks, oh, my son's been ripped apart by wild beasts. This favored son, the one that I waited for. His mama's gone. I can't get uh, uh, another one. I guess I still have Benjamin from her. But, you know, this is, this is it. It's interesting. You'll recall if you've been here before or from your Bible's lessons that Jacob himself uh, is someone who lived a life of deceit by and large. That's how he got where he was. He uh, deceived his father. And, and there's a saying, what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Uh, uh, bless his heart. He was deceived terribly and he thought his son was dead. And uh, Jacob, as far as Jacob felt, felt like his life was over. Joseph, meanwhile, gets taken to Egypt and he gets sold to a fellow named Potiphar. Potiphar is a Lord High muckety-muck within the, the uh, government of, of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh. In fact, he's captain of Pharaoh's guard, 
which could also mean that he had a, a, a relationship to Pharaoh himself. The captain of the guard uh, frequently in Egyptian times back then uh, would have, could have been a son of one of the harem uh, that Pharaoh kept. Uh, that's a, a, we know that from Egyptology, not from the Bible, so don't uh, search the Bible for it. Um, but uh, uh, Potiphar is clearly, as the Bible says, one of the higher-ups within the Egyptian government. And Potiphar has Joseph with him. And something amazing happens to Joseph. Amazing. Um, I call this uh, uh, the pre-Jabez Jabez prayer. Some of you have prayed the prayer of Jabez. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Terry Lowry, gave me that book. And his daughter Sarah is here today. Um, but within the prayer of Jabez, before that, there's this. And, and I, I urge you to open your Bible and make a mark on this. Okay? And let me tell you why and, and how I'd use it. This Joseph, who was, didn't have the greatest discretion, who had been the favored child from his daddy, who um, has uh, made mistakes in his life as his dad has, um, it is this Joseph that God uses. And the Bible says in Genesis 39.3 that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Um, uh, I'm here to tell you, uh, it is my prayer for my children. It is my prayer for my children. It's my prayer for my spouse. It's my prayer for you that God would give you success in everything you do. And I underline that, and I pray that for my kids. I'll pray that for my grandkids. I'll pray that for my friends. I would urge you to pray that for each other. God, would you make us or make so-and-so, make my son, make my daughter, like Joseph. You gave Joseph success in all he did, Lord. Would you please do that with my son? And the Lord gave Joseph success in all he did. That did not mean that Joseph had the life of Riley. Joseph had some horrible days. Joseph had some horrible career events. He about, he's about to get fired by Potiphar. But before Potiphar fires him, Potiphar builds him up. See, what Potiphar does is Potiphar puts, Potiphar sees that God is giving Joseph success in everything. And Potiphar says, that's the kind of guy I want investing my money. You know, that's the guy, kind of guy I want in charge of my household. Hey, you want someone investing your money? You want someone in charge of your household? How about someone whom the Lord blesses in everything he does? Never calls it wrong, you don't think. So Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of everything. And Joseph has the run of the house. Um, that leads to a problem. It leads to a problem because uh, um, Potiphar has a wife. And Potiphar's wife takes an interest in Joseph and tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph, as a godly man, says no. And runs from the wife. But while the wife was trying to seduce him, she had a hold of his clothes. And so Joseph runs, but his wife, Potiphar's wife keeps the clothes. And I believe it was Shakespeare who said, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But he may have been reading this story when he said it. Because rather than trying to continue to woo Joseph, Potiphar's wife feels scorned and she's just very upset. And she goes to Potiphar. And she says, What have you done? 
You bring this guy in, you let him have the run of the palace, and he wants to have his run of me. Look at this. I got away. But this is the guy who was trying to, in essence, rape me. And Potiphar goes to Joseph and doesn't listen to Joseph's side of the story, just fires him. But fires him in a very unique way. He has him locked up in prison for the rest of his life, and, uh, which is a tough way to lose your job because the career opportunities are very narrow. They didn't even have license plates for the chariots then for you to make in prison. So Joseph is, is uh, locked up. And I think, let me see, do I have a picture of this so that y'all can see what uh, Potiphar's wife looked like? I thought I did, but uh, let me do it this way. Yeah, there she is. That was her. See, she had his coat. And uh, um, um, so he runs. She stays. His coat stays. That's her evidence. Huh? He still looks 12. Well, that makes it even worse. She was a pedophile. Um, So, anyway. um, Oops, you don't get that picture yet. There's more to the story. Okay, so, um, Joseph gets locked up in the prison. Well, this is a bad day. This is a bad few years. I don't know about you, and I'm not a, um, I like to read Egyptology. We have a very dear family friend from Egypt, and, and uh, I always tell her that I'm reading about her heritage, so I always like her to see me reading the Egypt books, and I always show her the pictures of, like, Queen Nefertiti and say, are y'all related? Um, uh, she, doesn't, she always says yes, but I, I don't think she really knows for sure. Anyway, um, that's kind of funny, y'all. I mean, Queen Nefertiti's like 3,000 years ago. There's no way she'd know. But, okay, maybe it's not funny. Anyway, she, uh, um, I, I don't know this for certain, but I have a strong suspicion that Egyptian prison was not like a federal prison is today in America, where there are like golf courses or something, which there aren't really, but people act like there are. I think prison back then really uh, stunk in more ways than one. And, and... And this is where Joseph ends up. This is not a cool deal. You know, you're, you're ripped from your family. You're sold into slavery. God's blessing you in everything that you're doing. And yet you wind up in prison. While in prison, there were a few fellows there that Joseph had an opportunity to meet. He was making contacts for future career moves. And one of them was Pharaoh's cupbearer who had upset Pharaoh and, and got sent to prison. And the other was Pharaoh's baker who had evidently not been that good. And got sent to prison as well. And uh, um, the bread just didn't rise. No. The, uh, so they're in prison. And they, the cupbearer and the baker have these dreams. And they're troubled by their dreams. And Joseph says, hey, I know the Lord. And the Lord knows everything. And he'll know the interpretation of your dreams. Why don't you tell me your dreams? And the cupbearer says, well, I'll tell you my dream. And the cupbearer relates the dream. And Joseph says, oh, this is good. This is a sign Pharaoh is going to call you back and you're going to be restored to your position of honor. And when that happens, would you please remember me and tell Pharaoh I didn't do it? And uh, that I, I, you know, and the cupbearer says, sure, I'll be glad to. And then the baker says, ha this guy gives like good interpretations. This is worth it. So the baker says, here's my dream. And Joseph says, um, that's not a good dream. That's a sign uh, that you're going to get called out of prison, but just to get beheaded and killed. And sorry, it's been nice knowing you. And sure enough, both dreams come true. And the cupbearer gets restored and the baker gets uh, beheaded and and the, the, the cupbearer does not remember Joseph for a while until Pharaoh 
starts having bad dreams. Pharaoh has a dream where there are these seven sheaves that are just big and wonderful, and then there are these seven little scrawny sheaves, and the scrawny sheaves, which is the piled-up grain, go eat the big, wonderful sheaves. Where there are seven huge, beautiful cows, uh, or leahs, as we would call them, and then these seven scrawny cows come and eat up the seven big cows. And Pharaoh's troubled, and Pharaoh can't find anybody who's going to interpret the dream. And the cupbearer hears about it and says, Hey, time out. I remember this guy. This guy's in prison, and he nailed my dream. And it wasn't just mine. He nailed the baker's, so he wasn't just given, like, good results. You know, this is, this is like, real. And he was real specific. This wasn't like Cleo, who can just say things that would apply. Uh, do you know a woman... Yes. Oh, see, I see things. Okay. It wasn't like Cleo on one of those uh, psychic hotlines. This is the real deal. So Pharaoh says, well, bring that guy out. Let me talk to him. So Pharaoh tells Joseph the dreams. Joseph hears about him and says, um, you know, I can't tell you what this means, but the Lord can. The Lord's the author. And the Lord's telling you something that's very important. Here's what you need to know. These two dreams are one dream. They say the same thing. You're going to have seven years of incredible productivity in the land. Then you're going to have seven years of famine. And the seven years of famine will consume everything that the productivity had to offer. Pharaoh says, whoa, what do you think I ought to do? Joseph says, well, what you need to do is you need to make sure you've got someone in charge who sees the wisdom in this and will store up what you need to from the seven good years so that during the seven years of famine, you've got it. And Pharaoh says, well, who's going to be better at that than you? You know what's going on. I'm going to make you number two in the land. It's kind of interesting. Joseph's now above Potiphar. It's a big career move. <laughs> Pretty good. Okay? And sure enough, Joseph, uh, uh, through the seven years of, of plenty, um, accumulates for the Egyptian empire all this plenty. And then the seven years of famine hit. When the seven years of famine hit, they don't just hit Egypt. They hit that whole area. See? So Joseph's family, who are still back there grazing, raising sheep, Joseph's family is experiencing the famine and they need some food. Jacob says, hey, <clears throat> I hear word that there's still some food in Egypt. Um, you brothers, except for Benjamin, who's the only one I've got left from Rachel because you, you know, Joseph's dead. Except for Benjamin, would you brothers, the other ten that are a little more expendable, would y'all go to Egypt and buy some food and bring it back? So the brothers say, yeah, Dad, we will. They get all ready, and they go. Well, Joseph catch, sees that his brothers have come to buy food. Now, a lot of time has passed here, and Joseph has grown into a young man from being a boy. And the brothers do not recognize Joseph in all of his pomp and circumstance and regalia. I mean, this is the number two guy in Egypt at this point. So Joseph is not recognized by his brothers, and Joseph however, does know who his brothers are. And Joseph says, okay, we're going to give them the grain, but we're going to give them their money back too and put it in their bags. And as the brothers are going back, Joseph says, uh, uh, y'all go catch them stealing the money and uh, uh, bring back one of the brothers and make one of the brothers stay here with me as a, as a um, collateral, collateral. And so I, th I think it was Simeon, um, one of the brothers stays there, and uh, 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 the other brothers go back, and, 
and they tell the story to the dad and the dad just rents his clothes and says, oh my, this is horrible. All of my sons are just falling like flies. This, why does everything happen to me? And this is a terrible deal. We're staying away from there. He doesn't decide to go ransom the brother yet or anything else. Well, in the process of this, understand that the brothers run out of food and the family does, so the brothers have to go back. And the brothers say, Dad, he told us not to come back unless we bring Benjamin. And he's kept that other brother ransom because he said we were spies and, and that was the only way we could prove the truth of who we really were as a family. And so, you know, we, we, we've got no hope unless you send Benjamin. And the dad says, look, y'all never liked the sons of Rachel. You never liked Joseph. You don't like Benjamin. And you took Joseph from me and now you, you or you didn't protect him. And now, now, you know, you want this? You want Benjamin too? Am I supposed to lose both? I've lost her, and now I'm going to lose both of the boys. This just didn't right. They said, well, look, uh, my life is forfeit. My kids are forfeit if I don't bring little baby boy brother back. So finally, because they're running out of food, they got no choice. The brothers get to take Benjamin, and they go to Joseph. And the drama surrounding it is intense because Joseph sees Benjamin. Joseph orchestrated the whole thing of holding the boy and, I mean, holding the big brother uh, to get his little brother there so he could see his little brother. And Joseph goes out and he deals with his family, his brothers, but then he goes back quietly by himself and just bawls like a baby because his heart's just breaking. The reuniting of his family is more than he can handle. And, and, and so it's, it's a very touching drama. And what ultimately Joseph does is Joseph ultimately reveals who he is to his brothers and says, don't you recognize me? I'm Joseph. And the brothers uh, have, have their natural reaction. Their natural reaction is one of, of, oh my goodness, that's you. And some of them are a bit reticent, like, I wonder if he's still ticked off about that selling to slavery thing. <clears throat> and some of the, whoops, uh, some of the others are, are, you know, there's Benjamin being hugged, and some of the others are, he may be ticked off, oh, we better go butter him up. And uh, some of the others probably had genuine feelings. You know, the feelings had to stretch the whole range of the emotions. But what's wonderful about Joseph is Joseph had a true heart to his family. And with all of those brothers, whether it was his full brother or whether it was his half-brothers, Joseph had a full heart and said, please tell me news about Dad. Finds out Dad's still alive and says, bring the whole family Everybody come on down. I'm actually the number two guy here, so I can provide for all of you. And Joseph's dream is true as his entire family comes and receives from his hands. And his dad, I'm sure, uh, wept tears of joy at being reunited with the son that he thought was lost. And his dad, Jacob, lives out the rest of his days in Egypt. And as Genesis comes to a close, Jacob pulls his 12 sons to him and he pronounces his blessing upon them. And in these blessings, we see the prophecy continue. The blessing is one where... Well, actually, some of it's kind of a curse. Uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob doesn't give the nicest blessing to some of these boys. But to Judah... To Judah, not to Joseph, interestingly enough. To Judah, the prophecy that started with the offspring of woman and went through Noah and went through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
it continues through Judah. And it is Judah where Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hands will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub. Hold on to that. O Judah, you return from the prey, my son, like a lion. Add that to lion's cub and hold on to it. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Y'all, this is a direct prophecy, again, about Jesus and the redemption that will come. And the redemption is now further specified to come through the seed of Judah. And Jesus Christ will come through the seed of Judah. And it's interesting. It's interesting because Judah is affiliated with being a lion. If he had had a flag or a standard, that would be his family crest for his tribe. And Jesus, even in Revelation, in, in the last book, see the first book of the Bible is Genesis. The last book of the Bible is Revelation where John receives a vision from God. And in the vision, there are these seals that need to be broken for the vision to, to be fully unfolded. And, and there's no one there who's worthy to break the seals. And John starts weeping in his vision and says, who's worthy to break the seals? And a voice from heaven says, don't weep. Don't weep because... Let's get to it. Come on, come on, come on. One of the elders says to him, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and the seven seals. And we'll read in Revelation that that was Jesus. And Jesus is the lion of Judah. If we go back to the prophecy that Judah is a lion's cub, like a lion, he crouches. The scepter, that signifies the ruling, the authority, the kingdom, the redemption of the human race, the deliverance of us will not depart from Judah's offspring and Judah's line. It will come from Judah. The ruler's staff will not depart from Judah's feet until Jesus comes. It is to Jesus it belongs and it is to Jesus the obedience of the nations belongs to. And this is a very direct prophecy that we get from Genesis. As we go through our biblical literacy and we end with Genesis, um, we end with God's people, the Israelites, or Judahites, I mean, I mean Jacobites, because Israel is Jacob's name. The Israelites are in Egypt, and uh, uh, Joseph dies. Uh, uh, but even, even uh, uh, at that point, all of the family is there, and it will be in Egypt that deliverance will need to come. So, uh, I, I want to close with this. Um, I don't know what kind of days you have to look back on in your life, but I would be willing to, to wager um, that you have, like I do, days that you like, that you'd love to live over again, like your wedding day that you have days that you detest, that part of you says, I would love to change that day. I would love to change what happened to me. You don't have the ability to change it. But we do have the ability to say, God is bigger than that day. And though God did not like what happened, God doesn't like sin, He doesn't like death, He doesn't like abuse, 
He doesn't like any of the things that are bad. While God does not like what happened that day, God is bigger than that day, and God has brought me through that day, and God has brought me to a life where I am His right now, or at least I can be. I don't know if that gives you any strength that helped me fall asleep on the airplane. Um, would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much that uh, my friends and, and family and other people are here today. And uh, I thank you for the lessons that we have in the Bible. I pray that you will bless us to take to heart these lessons, that you will give me guidance and wisdom as I continue to teach through um, this. And I thank you so much for all of the gifts you've given us and the way you've worked in our lives. Please go with each of us today. And uh, Lord, it's my prayer that you will make everyone here, everyone here successful in what they put their hands to. And that the success will all be to your glory. In Jesus we pray, amen.